This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Anti-Federalist Papers Anti-Federalist No. 11 Letters from the Federal Farmer to the Republican Letter No. 9 January 4, 1788 Dear Sir, the advocates of the Constitution say we must trust to the administration and elect good men for representatives. I admit that in forming the social compact we can fix only general principles, and, of necessity, must trust something to the wisdom and integrity of the administration. But the question is, do we not trust too much, and to men also placed in the vortex of temptation, to lay hold of proffered advantages for themselves and their connections, and to oppose the body of the people. It is one thing to authorize a well-guarded legislature to make laws under the restraints of a well-guarded constitution, and another to assemble a few men and to tell them what, and to tell them to do what they please. I am not the more shaken in my principles or disposed to despair of the cause of liberty because some of our able men have adopted the yielding language of non-resistance, and dare writers insult the people with the signatures of Caesar, Mark Antony, and of other tyrants, because I see even more moderate and amiable men, forced to let go of monarchy in 1775, still in love with it, to use the simile of our countrymen, when the political pot boils the scum will often get uppermost and make its appearance. I believe the people of America, when they shall fully understand any political subject brought before them, will talk in a very different style, and use the manly language of freedom. But the people must elect good men. Examine the system. Is it practicable for them to elect fit and proper representatives where the number is so small? But the people may choose whom they please. This is an observation, I believe, made without due attention to facts and the state of the community. To explain my meaning, I will consider the descriptions of men commonly presented to the people as candidates for the offices of representatives. We may rank them in three classes. 1. The men who form the natural aristocracy, as before defined. 2. Popular demagogues. These men also are often politically elevated, so as to be seen by the people through the extent of large districts. They often have some abilities without principle, and rise into notice by their noise and arts. 3. The substantial and respectable part of the democracy. They are a numerous and valuable set of men who discern and judge well, but from being generally silent in public assemblies are often overlooked. They are the most substantial and the best informed men in several towns, who occasionally fill the middle grades of offices, etc., who hold not a splendid but a respectable rank in private concerns. These men are extensively diffused through all the counties, towns, and small districts in the Union. Even they and their immediate connections are raised above the majority of the people, and as representatives are only brought to a level with a more numerous part of the community, the middle orders, and a degree nearer the mass of the people. Hence it is that the best practical representation, even in a small state, must be several degrees more aristocratical than the body of the people. A representative so formed as to admit but a few or none of the third class is, in my opinion, not deserving of the name. Even in armies, courts-martial are so formed as to admit subaltern officers into them. The true idea is so to open and enlarge the representation as to let in a due proportion of the third class with those of the first. 
Now my opinion is that the representation proposed is so small as that ordinarily very few or none of them can be elected, and therefore, after all the parade of words and forms, the government must possess the soul of aristocracy, or something worse, the spirit of popular leaders. I observed in a former letter that the state of Delaware, of Rhode Island, the province of Maine, and each of the great counties in Massachusetts, etc., would have one member, and rather more than one when the representatives shall be increased to one for each thirty thousand inhabitants. In some districts the people are more dispersed and unequal than in others. In Delaware they are compact, in the province of Maine dispersed. How can the elections in either of those districts be regulated so as that a man of the third class can be elected. Exactly the same principles and motives, the same uncontrollable circumstances, must govern the elections as in the choice of the governors. Call upon the people of either of those districts to choose a governor, and it will probably never happen that they will bestow a major part, or the greatest number, of their votes on some very conspicuous or very popular character. A man that is known among a few thousands of people may be quite unknown among thirty or forty thousand. On the whole, it appears to me to be almost a self-evident position, that when we call on thirty or forty thousand inhabitants to unite in giving their votes for one man, it will be uniformly impracticable for them to unite in any men, except those few who have become eminent for their civil or military rank, or their popular legal abilities. It will be found totally impracticable for men in the private walks of life, except in the profession of law, to become conspicuous enough to attract the notice of so many electors and have their suffrages. But if I am right, it is asked why so many respectable men advocate the adoption of the proposed system. Several reasons may be given. Many of our gentlemen are attached to the principles of monarchy and aristocracy. They have an aversion to democratic republics. The body of the people have acquired large powers and substantial influence by the revolution. In the unsettled state of things, their numerous representatives, in some instances, misuse their powers, and have induced many good men suddenly to adopt ideas unfavorable to such republics, and which ideas they will discard on reflection. Without scrutinizing into the particulars of the proposed system, we immediately perceive that its general tendency is to collect the powers of government, now in the body of the people in reality, and to place them in the higher order and fewer hands. No wonder, then, that all those of and about these orders are attached to it. They feel there is something in this system advantageous to it. They feel there is something in this system advantageous to them. On the other hand, the body of the people evidently feel there is something wrong and disadvantageous to them. Both descriptions perceive there is something tending to bestow on the former the height of power and happiness, and to reduce the latter to weakness, insignificance, and misery. The people evidently feel all this, though they want expressions to convey their ideas. Further, even the respectable part of the democracy have never yet been able to distinguish clearly where the fallacy lies. They find there are defects in the confederation, they see a system presented, they think something must be done, and, while their minds are in suspense, the zealous advocates force a reluctant consent. Nothing can be stronger evidence of the nature of this system than the general sense of the several orders in the community respecting its tendency. The parts taken generally by them proves my position that, notwithstanding the parade of words and forms, the government must possess the soul of aristocracy. Congress heretofore have asked for moderate additional powers. The cry was give them, be federal, but the proper distinction between the causes. 
but the proper distinction between the cases that produce this disposition and the system proposed has not been fairly made and seen in all its consequences. We have seen some of our state representations too numerous, and without examining a medium we run into the opposite extreme. It is true the proper number of federal representatives is a matter of opinion in some degree, but there are extremes which we immediately perceive, and others which we clearly discover on examination. We should readily pronounce a representative branch of fifteen members small in a federal government, having complete powers as to taxes, military matters, commerce, the corn, and etc. On the other hand, we should readily pronounce a federal representation as numerous as even those of the several states, consisting of about fifteen hundred representatives, unwieldy and totally improper. It is asked, has not the wisdom of the convention found the medium? Perhaps not. The convention was divided on this point of numbers. At least some of its members urged that instead of sixty-five representatives there ought to be a hundred and thirty in the first instance. They fixed one representative for each forty thousand inhabitants, and at the close of the work the President suggested that the representation appeared to be too small, and without debate it was put at not exceeding one for each thirty thousand. I mention these facts to show that the convention went on no fixed data. In this extensive country it is difficult to get a representation sufficiently numerous. Necessity, I believe, will oblige us to sacrifice in some degree the true genuine principles of representation. But this sacrifice ought to be as little as possible. How far we ought to increase the representation I will not pretend to say, but feel that we ought to increase it very considerably is clear to double it at least, making full allowances for the state representations, and this we may evidently do, and approach accordingly towards safety and protection, without encountering any inconveniences. It is with great difficulty that people can unite these different interests and views even tolerably, in the state senators, who are more than twice as numerous as the federal representatives, as proposed by the convention. Even these senators are considered as so far removed from the people that they are not allowed immediately to hold their purse-strings. The principal objections made to the increase of the representation are the expense and difficulty in getting the members to attend. The first cannot be important. The last, if founded, is against any federal government. As to the expense, I presume the House of Representatives will not be in sessions more than four months in the year. We find by experience that about two-thirds of the members of representative assemblies usually attend. Therefore, of the representation proposed by the convention, about forty-five members will probably attend. Doubling their number, about ninety will probably attend. Their pay, in one case, at four dollars a day each, which is putting it high enough, will amount to, yearly, twenty-one thousand six hundred dollars. In the other case, forty-three thousand two hundred dollars difference $21,600. Reduce the state representatives from 1,500 down to 1,000, and thereby save the attendance of two-thirds of the 500, say three months in a year, at one dollar and a quarter a day each, $37,125. Thus we may leave the state representation sufficiently large, and yet save enough by the reduction nearly to support exceedingly well the whole federal representation, I propose. Surely we never can be so unwise as to sacrifice, essentially, the all-important principles of representation for so small a sum as $21,600 a year for the United States. A single company of soldiers would cost this sum. 
It is a fact that can easily be shown that we expend three times this sum every year upon useless inferior offices and very trifling concerns. It is also a fact which can be shown that the United States in the late war suffered more by a faction in the federal government than the pay of the federal representation will amount to for twenty years. As to the attendance, can we be so unwise as to establish an unsafe and inadequate representative branch and give it as a reason that we believe only a few members will be induced to attend, we ought certainly to establish an adequate representative branch and adopt measures to induce an attendance. I believe that a due proportion of 130 or 140 members will be induced to attend. There are various reasons for the non-attendance of the members of the present Congress. It is to be presumed that these will not exist under the new system. To compensate for the want of a genuine representation in a government, where the purse and sword and all important powers are proposed to be lodged, a variety of unimportant things are enumerated by the advocates of it. In the second place, it is said that the members of Congress must return home and share in the burdens they may impose, and therefore private motives will induce them to make mild laws, to support liberty, and ease the burdens of the people. This brings us to a mere question of interest under this head. I think these observations will appear on examination altogether fallacious, because this individual interest, which may coincide with the rights and interests of the people, will be far more than balanced by opposite motives and opposite interests. If on a fair calculation a man will gain more by measures oppressive to others than he will lose by them, he is interested in their adoption. It is true that those who govern generally by increasing the public burdens increase their own share of them but by this increase they may, and often do, increase their salaries, fees, and emoluments, in a tenfold proportion, by increasing salaries, forming armies and navies, and by making offices. If it shall appear the members of Congress will have these temptations before them, the argument is on my side. They will view the account, and be induced continually to make efforts advantageous to themselves and connections, and oppressive to others. We must examine facts. Congress, in its present form, have but few offices to dispose of worth the attention of the members, or of men of the aristocracy. Yet from 1774 to this time we find a large proportion of these offices assigned to those who were, or had been, members of Congress. And though the states choose annually sixty or seventy members, many of them have been provided for, but few men are known to Congress in this extensive country, and probably but few men will be to the President and Senate, except those who have, or shall appear, as members of Congress, or those whom the members may bring forward. The States may now choose yearly ninety-one members of Congress. Under the new Constitution they will have it in their power to choose exactly the same number, perhaps afterwards one hundred and fifteen. But these must be chosen once in two and six years so that in the course of ten years together not more than two-thirds so many members of Congress will be elected and brought into view, as there now are in the Confederation in the same term of time. But at least there will be five, if not ten times, as many offices and places worthy the attention of the members, under the new Constitution, as there are under the Confederation. Therefore we may fairly presume that a very great proportion of the members of Congress, especially the influential ones, instead of returning to private life, will be provided for with lucrative offices in the civil or military department, and not only the members, but many of their sons, friends, and connection. These offices will be in the constitutional disposition of the President and Senate, 
and corruption out of the question, what kind of security can we expect in a representation, so many of the members of which may rationally feel themselves candidates for these offices? Let common sense decide. It is true that members chosen to offices must leave their seats in Congress, and to some few offices they cannot be elected till the time shall be expired for which they were elected members. But this scarcely will affect the bias arising from the hopes and expectations of office. It is not only in this point of view the members of Congress, by their efforts, may make themselves and friends powerful and happy, while the people may be oppressed but there is another way in which they may soon warp laws which ought to be equal to their own advantages by those imperceptible means, and on those doubtful principles which may not alarm. No society can do without taxes. They are the efficient means of safety and defense, and they too have often been the weapons by which the blessings of society have been destroyed. Congress will have power to lay taxes at pleasure for the general welfare, and if they misjudge of the general welfare and lay unnecessary oppressive taxes, the Constitution will provide, as I shall hereafter show, no remedy for the people or states. The people must bear them, or have recourse, not to any constitutional checks or remedies, but to that resistance which is the last resort, and founded in self-defense. It is well stipulated that all duties, imposts, and excises shall be equal, and that direct taxes shall be apportioned on the several states by a fixed rule, but nothing further. Here commences a dangerous power in matters of taxation, lodged without any regard to the balance of interests of the different orders of men, and without any regard to the internal policy of the states. Congress having assigned to any state its quota, say to New Jersey, $80,000 in a given tax, Congress will be entirely at liberty to apportion that sum on the counties and towns, poles, lands, houses, labor, and etc., and appoint the assessors and collectors in that state, in what manner they please. There will be nothing to prevent a system of tax laws being made, unduly to ease some descriptions of men and burden others. Though such a system may be unjust and injudicious, though we may complain, the answer will be, Congress have the power delegated by the people, and probably Congress has done what it thought best. By the Confederation, taxes must be quoted on the several states by fixed rules, as before mentioned, but then each state's quota is apportioned on the several numbers and classes of citizens in the state by the state legislature, assessed and collected by state laws. Great pains have been taken to confound the two cases, which are as distinct as light and darkness. This I shall endeavor to illustrate when I come to the amendment respecting eternal taxes. I shall only observe, at present, that in the state legislatures the body of the people will be genuinely represented, and in Congress not, that the right of resisting oppressive measures is inherent in the people, and that a constitutional barrier should be so formed that their genuine representatives may stop an oppressive, ruinous measure in its early progress, before it shall come to maturity and the evils of it become, in a degree, fixed. It has lately been often observed that the power or body of men entrusted with the national defense and tranquillity must necessarily possess the purse unlimitedly, that the purse and sword must go together. This is a new doctrine in a free country, and by no means tenable. In the British government the king is particularly entrusted with the national honor and defense, but the commons solely hold the purse. 
I think I have amply shown that the representation in Congress will be totally inadequate in matters of taxation, etc., and therefore that the ultimate control over the purse must be lodged elsewhere. We are not to expect even honest men rigidly to adhere to the line of strict impartiality, where the interest of themselves or friends is particularly concerned. If we do expect it, we shall deceive ourselves and make a wrong estimate of human nature. But it is asked, how shall we remedy the evil so as to complete and perpetuate the temple of equal laws and equal liberty? Perhaps we never can do it. Perhaps we never may be able to do it in this immense country under any one system of laws, however modified. Nevertheless, at present, I think the experiment worth a making. I feel an aversion to the disunion of the states and to separate confederacies. The states have fought and bled in a common cause, and great dangers too many attend these confederacies. I think the system proposed capable of a very considerable degrees of perfection, if we pursue first principles. I do not think that Delorme, or any writer I have seen, has sufficiently pursued the proper inquiries and efficient means for making representation and balances in government more perfect. It is our task to do this in America. Our object is equal liberty, and equal laws diffusing their influence among all orders of men. To obtain this we must guard against the bias of interests and passions, against interested combinations, secret or open. We must aim at a balance of efforts and strength. Clear it is, by increasing the representation we lessen the prospects of each member of Congress being provided for in public offices. We proportionally lessen official influence and strengthen his prospects of becoming a private citizen, subject to the common burdens, without the compensation of the emoluments of office. By increasing the representation we make it more difficult to corrupt and influence the members. We diffuse them more extensively among the body of the people, perfect the balance, multiply information, strengthen the confidence of the people, and consequently support the laws on equal and free principles. There are two other ways, I think, of obtaining in some degree the security we want. The one is by excluding more extensively the members from being appointed to offices. The other is by limiting some of their powers. But these two I shall examine hereafter. Yours, etc., The Federal Farmer. End of Anti-Federalist Number 11